Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Hamilton Ticats are heading to Calgary for the Grey Cup. We talk to Washington and find out how the impeachment inquiry is moving along. And Prince Andrew goes on TV and ends up hurting his cause more than he is helping. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the Thai Cats. Uh, what an incredible uh, weekend it was for uh, uh, to, to watch uh, CFL action. Uh, you know, not so much an exciting game for the Thai Cats. Certainly, if you're a, if you're a Thai Cat fan, uh, but both games pretty exciting for fans all around. The Thai Cats ready to head off to Calgary. Uh, heading off, uh, Bill Kelly has already left. Has he beat the team there? Uh, he's out there as well. Good for him, man, and uh, very excited to uh, to be heading out and and, and bringing the uh, the eastern hospitality to the west. Tim Hortons Field's going to have a, a viewing party as well. Let's talk about the whole thing. Bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, right here every weeknight, and of course, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Is Bill Kelly out there? I think he is going out. Yeah, is he? Yeah, he is goes he, like, out. Is he going to do the fifth quarter live from? the field out there? Uh, no, that's Rick Zamperin's job. Well, I know, but I figure if he's there, <laughs> why not, you know, why not like do it? it? Make Rick, the guy Rick, work. Hey, Rick I don't care. Already, if he... Rick already does a terrific job wading through the callers, some of whom who have dabbled in the, in the alcoholic arts. Oh, it's and a great show. It's a great show. And yeah. It just navigates it perfectly. <laughs> and some of the callers have occasionally dabbled, but um, not all are teetotalers, amazingly. And I figure that if Bill is out there, like, get them when they're completely blasted to come on the air. Just take it the next step. Yeah, yeah you can easily do that. Uh, you know, it was funny because we were, uh, my son and I were at the last regular home season game and uh, and listening to Rick on the way home. And uh, Kurt started texting him, and he read his text on the air, so he was very excited about that. It was pretty funny. Was the uh, text Kurt? Pardon me? Nothing. Go ahead. It was a bad. Oh man! <laughs> I just came back from wisdom tooth surgery. I'm not. That stuff's going right over my head now. All right. All right. All right. I, so I I'll, I'll try and keep it simple. Yeah, keep it simple, stupid. So at the end of the day, uh, your thoughts on this team? This is pretty remarkable. Well, I think you and I. I think we had talked a week or so ago, and uh, I had said, look, from a purely storyboard journalistic radio host newspaper writer perspective i really hope it's hamilton versus winnipeg because lots of storylines all the storylines i I mean look saskatchewan getting in would have been fine uh because they're the big market and they're the heartbeat of the cfl still and all the rest and you know i suppose that um edmonton getting in would have been interesting in a sense because it would have been the first crossover team from the west the first time we would have had a west west a West versus West Grey Cup, that would have been fine. But you've, you've got so many storylines here. You've got the two teams with the longest Grey Cup droughts. I mean, uh, BC, uh, uh, Winnipeg, I think, is 29 years, and Hamilton is 20. Um, you've got uh, um, Zach Caleros now, the quarterback of Winnipeg, after bouncing around in the last year or so, former Ticat quarterback going against his old team. You have a bunch of... Um, Mac guys on both sides, so the Hamilton connection yeah. from there. You've got Simone Lawrence. Remember at the beginning of the year when Caleros was playing for Saskatchewan and, and Simone Lawrence took his head off Nails him, yeah. and got suspended, so you've got that thing going on. Um, it, it just goes on and on. There's a bunch of uh, Danny McManus, former 
Grey Cup winner for the Ticats and Great is now the assistant general manager for the Bombers. And Kyle Walters, the GM of the Bombers, is a former Ticat. I mean, it's you could sit there for the next three weeks and not run out of great storylines between these two teams. So it is it is as good a matchup for that reason as you can possibly get. And here's the other thing. We know that before every championship game, whether it's the Super Bowl or the Grey Cup, the TV network generally goes on the air about 6 a.m. and starts doing all the pregame stuff. And more often than not, almost every single year, it is horrible. It is uninteresting. Yeah. They're trying <laughs> too hard to come yeah. up with content, and there's nothing there. And you get these schlocky, sappy, maudlin, piano, tinkling key music about something. This, this one, they can legitimately fill the entire pregame with stories that you could watch and go, huh, that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Hadn't thought about that. So it's, it's, it, it is the perfect matchup. So why this year for Hamilton? Why are the Ducks in a row? What has happened, especially considering injury and changes? Because um, nobody would have predicted this. Okay, uh, injuries, yeah, they lost Jeremiah Masoli, but every single team in the league lost their starting quarterback. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that leveled the playing field where had they been the only team to lose their starter, it would have been a big problem, or potentially. But everybody faced that issue, and uh, Dane Evans, Hamilton's backup, came in and took him four games, probably maybe five, but he figured it out. He's now playing very well. Um, other than that, though, the, the Ticats have not had crippling, crippling injuries. They're going to go into this game pretty healthy, which obviously helps them. Um, and why else? Uh, look, I, I, I said this months ago, and I stand by it now, and I think that a lot of the credit for this has to go to Orlando Steinauer, the head coach, who for years we've been hearing, this guy's going to be a good head coach. This guy's going to be a pretty good head coach. And you get the sense that not only is he a good head coach as far as the coaching side of things, but he is a guy that has great respect of the players, that the players like playing for. You know, I wrote a piece last week about the McMaster game and about Steph Potasic, the head coach there, and the players raving about playing for Steph and how they love playing for Steph, and they would run through a brick wall for this guy. You get, I mean, university and the pros are different, and it's a different atmosphere and a different environment, but you get kind of the same feeling about Steinauer, that he's been able to tap into whatever good parts there are on the Ticats and make them all work. That, that's been a challenge. There have been, in recent years, there have been things that have worked really well for the Ticats, and then other things are not going so well. Here, you seem to have everything moving in the same direction, yeah. and I, I give a ton of credit to the guy in charge of everything. And, you know, you talked about storylines. Both coaches, there you go. There, there's storylines right there between uh, Mike O'Shea and, and, and Hamilton and former and, teammates and, former teammates and Ar- the Argonaut connection and all of that stuff. And I mean, the Ticat connection. Yeah, yeah. Played for the Ticats. And, yeah, there's another one. I mean, Mike O'Shea. Some people listening may be too young to remember uh, that there was a time when Mike O'Shea was literally public enemy number one oh, by yeah. the stadium. Yeah. I mean, people, because he'd been here, and then he chose to leave and go to the Argos, and people here hated him. When he came, it was attack Mike O'Shea, just scream at Mike O'Shea and go after him. Well, now you've got another chance, different uniform that he's wearing, um, but funny that the guy that is standing between the Ticats and the Grey Cup is the guy that you, over the years, Maybe there's been a bit of a lull here, but the guy that you used to love to love to love to hate. And so 
Uh, imagine, I mean, you know, it wouldn't be the perfect ending for Hamilton people, but imagine if Mike O'Shea was the guy that denied you the Grey Cup again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just would add to the, well, for those, again, who remember it and still cling to it, would add to the level of vitriol between him and this team. Uh, it, 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 you know, it seems in the past, a lot of people, you know, the buzz was, is it, is this the year? Is this the year? Is this, could this be? And and there was sort of a lot of hype, then disappointment. This, there just seems to be a long, slow build of a swagger. Uh, Well, look, they, they should win. They're the better team. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that there's any question about that. I think, uh, uh, if both teams play to their peak level, Hamilton wins this game. I don't think there's any question about that. They're the better team. The and they've showed it this year when they played Winnipeg. They they did very well against them. Um, so you've got um, you've got the opportunity for sure. The X factor I'm going to call it in this game is the last two times they played them. Zach Caleros was not under center. Was not playing quarterback. And you know, Caleros has had a rough go for a few years now with concussions and other stuff. And, I mean, after he left the Ticats, he's bounced around. He's been with Saskatchewan, and he's been with uh, Toronto, and he's been with, I can't remember who else now. He's been around. Um, in the last three or four weeks, he is starting to look more like the guy that back in 2000 and what was it, 16, 15, when he got hurt playing for the Ticats, but was looking like the guy who could win most outstanding player in the league. He's not there yet, but he's starting to look like that guy again. And so if Winnipeg has a chance to win this game, and of course they have a chance to win this game, it's largely because the guy who's playing quarterback for them is A, going to be, you know he's going to be unbelievably motivated to beat his old team, but B, he's a guy who's good enough right now that he could do that. He could do that. But, I mean, again, I I still think Hamilton wins this game. So I think the defense is better. I think yeah. overall the offense is it's their better. game to lose. Yeah, but Caleros at least gives them a good chance at this one. And if Hamilton is not at their best, like, this is not one of those games where the difference is so enormous that you can show up and have a stinker and still come away with it. I mean, Winnipeg will win this game if Hamilton doesn't play well. Yep. But but Hamilton has not not played well for a number of weeks now. They've played good for many weeks, so it, it would be shocking if they showed up and pitched a stinker in this one. Scott Radley has been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear me every weeknight right here, and of course, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the impeachment inquiry is moving into what many say is a a very important stage this week with some uh, key witnesses uh, coming up to testify. To talk more about all of this, Reggie Giacchini is with us. Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, uh, thanks for taking the time as always. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So before we uh, get to what has been happening today, uh, let's talk about what happened last week for a a brief period and and just talk about the fallout uh, after the testimony that we saw last week, uh, specifically in and around the ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, what What was the buzz around Washington after what happened last week? 
Well, I mean, look, the people that are coming forward to testify before Congress, uh, you know, are doing so because they were subpoenaed to do so and are also doing so because they are career uh, diplomats. They are career members of the State Department. They are active members of the military, and they believe that what they are doing serves in the best interest of America and its national uh, security and its uh, its foreign interests around the world. And uh, once we heard from the original two people uh, from George Kent and from Ambassador Taylor and then from Ambassador Yovanovitch on Friday, they started to uh, depict what appears to be uh, an abuse of power from within the Oval Office that breaches the Constitution. And I think that's what the main takeaway is from these people that are testifying, is that the president, who does have an ultimate power in the United States, uh, appears to have abused that power. Uh, that was uh, you know, spoken uh, highly about uh, by Ambassador Yovanovitch last week, who uh, felt that she had no reason why she was being taken out of her job other than the fact that she was potentially becoming an obstacle uh, to getting in the way of investigations that would have furthered uh, the president's personal political interests in Ukraine. Uh, that was what was uh, spoken about at length last week, and that is what has been spoken about uh, for the last several hours today. Just these the, these pinpoints to the White House that there appears to be something wrong uh, when it comes to how the uh, administration was acting when it came to Ukraine. What about about the tweet that we all experienced during uh, her testimony, when the when President Donald Trump actually started uh, commenting on on her testimony while she was she, while she was giving it, uh, it just seems bizarre. How is that being processed? It was bizarre. It took Ambassador Ivanovich by surprise. It took members of the Democrats who were asking questions by surprise, and you know, to no surprise, it didn't really have an impact on on the president, who made no you know second thoughts about it. It was. Kind kind of talked about over the weekend on some of the Sunday shows. It was talked about, you know, among circles in Washington. But at the end of the day, the president always says that his tweets speak for themselves. He is his ultimate communicator in chief uh, and and feels that he can kind of say what he wants. Now, today during testimony, it was brought up by a Democrat that the president potentially could have committed an impeachable offense by uh, partaking in what is perceived to be, uh, you know, a possibility of witness intimidation uh, for Ambassador Yovanovitch. But this is what we have come to expect from the administration from this president. They get in the way of uh, investigations, particularly when the weight is starting to weigh down a shoulder. It seems as if the charges are evolving as the investigation does. I mean, look, it is, uh, you know, the, 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 Potential for witness tampering, you know, that, that kind of just came up out of out of the blue because the president opted to weigh in to an ongoing uh, investigation. So, you know, it, it's possible that that's something they could look at, much like the House is now going to look into the president's written statements that he gave to the Robert Mueller investigation, fearing he could be lying. And if he was found to be lying to Congress, they could potentially go back and, and use that as an article of impeachment. So they, they originally said they don't want to go down a number of different avenues because they don't want to make this as confusing as the Russia investigation was. Uh, so I think they're still trying to remain laser focused in looking at what the president simply did on that phone call with Ukraine, trying to do what was originally a quid pro quo, then was turned into extortion, now is being discussed as bribery. Uh, in any event, using that as the centralized focus for this impeachment inquiry. OK, so let's fast forward to what is happening today. Uh, uh, Republicans earlier last week said that this is just all hearsay. This is nothing. It's going nowhere. Uh, we all know that's how these sort of things start as they build up steam and as you lay the groundwork and foundation for these cases, uh, give us give us an update. What's happened today? 
Well, I mean, this has been uh, a day with a bit more uh, kind of uh, fire and fury, if you will, uh, compared to what we had last week when it was uh, the beginning of the process and people were complaining that it was a little too legal and a little too slow. This one started off legal again with counsel asking questions from the Republican side, from the Democratic side. Uh, But once we entered into questions from actual lawmakers, uh, the narratives were very obvious from depending on what side you were looking at. Democrats are still very clearly focused on the interactions between the president, uh, between some people close to the president and people inside Ukraine when it comes to this uh, alleged pressure campaign on the country to open up investigations. Republican questions uh, have all been all over the place, uh, but in in you know what kind of was a bit of a jaw-dropping moment, we had a number of Republicans who started to uh, kind of tatter the career and reputation of a decorated war hero sitting before them. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who you know wears a purple heart, he was injured while in the line of duty. He uh, is a sitting member of the National Security Council and was on the phone call with President Trump and President Zelensky. Uh, Republicans have been questioning, you know, why he wants to be called Lieutenant Colonel and not Mister. Questioning why, uh, you, you know, he was wow. offered a job in another country <laughs> and asking because he speaks numerous languages and was born overseas. Uh, questioning why he, uh, you know, if if he was approached and what language he was speaking uh, when he was talking to somebody from another country, kind of trying to push this dual loyalty thing. So Republicans really trying to push these conspiracies out there uh and and it's unbecoming of uh, of this party to be going after this decorated war hero so how crucial is his testimony considering he heard the call well i mean look democrats are 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 kind of laser focused on yes you were on that call tell us what you heard you followed the lines of commands you went above you you spoke to the proper chain you went up to the white house and you did this they're trying to look at it as a process matter republicans are trying to say well look you were on that phone call but you made a determination about what you think you heard you were on that phone call and you didn't follow a line of command because you went somewhere else first and then spoke to somebody else. It's It's been all over the place, but Republicans at one point tried to use Colonel Vindman as an opportunity to try to exploit who the whistleblower was, and was they were ultimately shut down uh, by the, by the uh, sitting chair. Uh, but this goes to show how kind of contentious and important this day is, because these, for the first time, are people with firsthand information about the president's interactions with President Zelensky. Uh, and you know, after weeks of hearing Republicans say this is secondhand information, this is hearsay, this is a sham, they're really trying to reach and grasp for straws to make this into something. That is uh, my that was my next question because uh, that's all we heard last week is you know someone heard someone else say this and over phone call over that and da 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 da. So with Alexander Vindman, uh, which is White House top Ukraine expert, testifying uh, and has has heard the call, how damaging is his testimony? What did he say about what he heard? Well, well, look, Republicans are trying to say that his information about the phone call shouldn't be uh, listened to because they believe he might have been the person who went to speak with the whistleblower. You know, at the end of the day, that shouldn't matter because the whistleblower, uh, you know, in their eyes had secondhand information anyways. But the, uh, uh, Colonel Vindman, uh, Lieutenant Vindman, has already spoken on numerous times saying what he heard the president say uh, was inappropriate. He said it's improper, quote, for the president of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. He, he he believes that uh, you know that this was a cr- uh, a clear pressure on Ukraine and was against uh, kind of what policy dictated uh, should happen when it comes to sitting leaders of countries. So he was obviously con- uh, concerned about this. Same with Jennifer Williams, who's testifying sitting next to him. She felt that what the president did was quote improper uh, and and not a normal way uh, for these kind of channels to work. Uh, and and again, this is what Democrats are hoping is uh, going to lead them to a direct line when they're trying to. Uh, uh, draft any kind of impeachment article.
So uh, would you say uh, that this week is going to be, how difficult will this be for Republicans? I mean, last week they they were criticizing about hearsay and so on. Uh, As we move forward with this, are they going to have a hard time uh, questioning the credibility of Alexander Bidman? Well, I think they are. They've been trying this. Look, within the last kind of 15 minutes or so, Representative Jim Jordan, who is uh, very much a Trump loyalist and is in that kind of Trump camp, uh, was was talking to both the people that were testifying, both uh, Vindman and uh, Williams. And both of them have said that they had concerns over what the president said uh, and that he was trying to kind of pin them as being people who went and blabbed to other people and potentially spilled this to the media. Representative Ratcliffe on the Republican side was trying to make it seem like the two of of them uh, were not, you know, working together and had different uh, interpretations of what the phone call was. The Republicans are really trying to sully what's been happening today uh, as, as a kind of wall around them starts to close. And it's going to grow increasingly more difficult tomorrow when the ambassador to the European Union testifies, Gordon Sondland, because he has direct ties to the president and direct phone calls with the president. So this is only going to heat up and increase uh, as these kind of days go by. And everybody is waiting for tomorrow and that testimony. Correct. Did they did they realize that this testimony today would be as damaging? Well, I mean, look, Republicans are going to say that this is not a damaging day. The president's already tweeted out that the Republicans are on fire and that they're doing great. And he spent the last couple of minutes now retweeting about 25 different tweets from uh, from both the GOP and from Republican members that are sitting in there. But ultimately, what we're seeing today is damaging to the Republican narrative uh, that the president did nothing wrong and that there was no quid pro quo or no bribery. Uh, tomorrow is going to be difficult because Ambassador Sondland was on the phone call, uh, was on the phone rather with President Trump right. at a restaurant in Kiev talking about investigations into Joe Biden, not talking about an overall uh, kind of anti-corruption policy that the that the president was supposed to be discussing. So this is going to be uh, a, an ultimately damning moment for the Republicans and the president. You were talking about the president uh, tweeting during this as he, he did last week. Has he done anything to try to discredit this witness? Uh, the only way he's trying to possibly discredit any kind of witnesses is the fact that he is tweeting out uh, representatives that are inside the meeting right now uh, and, and people who are linked to the meeting. He's tweeting out what he's kind of doing a bunch of retweets right now. And he pushed out uh, a 30 second uh, what appears to be a potential television campaign um, ad that decries this as a sham and is basically making fun of Adam Schiff. So he doesn't. He's not per se going after people by name, but it's the roundabout effect of his tweets right now. His most recent tweet within the last couple of minutes from the uh, Republican Oversight Committee that tweets that Schiff's, quote, sham impeachment is collapsing. So it's not him going after somebody in particular. He's just retweeting a collective thought of inside the GOP. Hmm. Uh, What about his health? There was some concerns about that earlier on. Uh, there were concerns about that, and he discussed that uh, earlier today in a uh, cabinet meeting when he was approached by uh, by the pool. And he went to Walter Reed Medical Center over the weekend for an unscheduled, uh, what he's calling first part of a physical, uh, which kind of breaks protocol and breaks policy of the past as to how this uh, kind of you know is is relayed out to not only the media but the public. Uh, he says that he's fine. We know that he has some heart problems, but a doctor's letter was released basically saying he has no heart issues uh, and his mental health is fine. You know, 
Fox News over the weekend was calling him um, superhuman. But during his meeting today, he, he basically said he's in great health and he's fine and he's going to finish up his physical in January. But there are critics out there saying physicals don't usually take that long. It shouldn't be five months in between just getting a couple of tests. So there are a number of questions out there. He's calling the media sick for attacking him on this. But we have to remember back that it was the GOP who went hard uh, on the health of Hillary Clinton and a number of conspiracy theories around her health uh, mm-hmm. during the last campaign. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, or as we mentioned earlier on last week, it was all about hearsay. There's still lots of chatter about the whistleblower trying to distract over there. Now we have two credible witnesses that are on or will be uh, testifying and that were on the phone call. Does that pretty much lay it out there? I mean, isn't that the case? Isn't that this whole investigation right now? Well, I mean, that's what Democrats are really hoping for, is that these people have firsthand information and they're hoping that any public that's watching this right now or kind of getting their their headlines from a variety of sources online and not just kind of one spoon-fed media outlet, uh, that it's going to be able to change public perception, that it's going to be able to sway how the public feels not only about impeachment, but about the entire process that Democrats have gone through over the last couple of years to try and put Donald Trump's uh, actions in line. And, uh, you know, we'll see, you know, when day of polling comes out later today, if the needle has moved at all. But uh, Democrats really want to make sure that they can focus the public's attention on what potentially may have happened and leave Republicans vulnerable next year if they see that their base is moving towards impeachment and they're still looking to save the president. Could the Democrats go through this whole process this week? And, And obviously the these couple of witnesses that we're seeing coming up, uh, seeing now and then coming up on uh, tomorrow and such are our key to all of this. If they make it through this week, is that it? Well, I mean, it very possibly could be. I mean, you know, it, nothing is set in stone right now. And the chair, uh, Adam Schiff, continuously says, look, if this makes its way to the Judiciary Committee, if we ultimately decide that we're going to, uh, you know, go over the evidence and hand that over, there are still a lot of what ifs. And the Democrats still understand that this is simply just a hearing process and that there are a number of steps that are involved still. But Democrats feel rock solid in the evidence that they've been able to gather, put forward with the, these witnesses uh, and with their typical messaging uh, of saying, look, we've we've legislated and we've gotten nowhere with that. We've now investigated and we're trying to get somewhere with that. And ultimately, if they do decide to send this to the Judiciary Committee, uh, it's very likely that they will pass some kind of article of impeachment on the president and send that off to the trial. And uh, Democrats, even if they fail, will be able to say, look, for three years, we legislated effectively. The Republicans wouldn't let us pass our legislation to the Senate. And we investigated properly. And the Republicans stonewalled us at every chance. How do how would the president sell that in the future? I mean, assuming that that's what does happen and there's no reason to believe that that won't happen how does the president sell that I mean, look, he's going to sell it the same way he's been selling it for three years and that he is a victim of uh, the Democrats, that he is a target for, you know, the deep state and and operatives working for the Democrats and, quote unquote, never Trumpers. He'll take it on the campaign trail and say that he is a victim uh, and his base will buy into it and his base will believe it. And he hopes that that's going to be enough to energize not only his base, but, you know, angry Democrats or potential uh, independents that may swing over to his side. This is going to be something that is going to become key on the campaign trail next year, but it's also likely going to be something that plays into the Democrats' hands next year as well, because there is ultimately going to be a Democratic presidential candidate chosen at this convention that is going to take the information that we learn right now and incorporate that into their campaign as well. Uh, Is is there any sort of of threat that, or is there any sort of of point that he'll he'll make it all the way through and then all of a sudden, or, or, or a certain way through all of this and then Republicans will say, you know what, that's it, we're out. 
Is there anything I, that can come out of this that they'll say, we can't move forward with this? There is a possibility, and the only possibility for that is going to be if public sentiment continues to rise and we end up with some you know, massive majority of the United States public yeah. feeling in favor of impeachment. Because if Republicans all of a sudden are choosing uh, the president over their base, not only do they potentially lose their job, they lose the Senate uh, into the hands of the Democrats, they could lose the presidency as well. So the Republicans have to be very uh, closely paying attention to where this public opinion meter is moving to. Because at the end of the day, if the public wants impeachment and they choose to save the presidency instead, uh, instead, their entire party's future is going to be in jeopardy next year. Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based in Washington. And make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Alyssa PR. Maybe she's got a, an opinion on all of this. Uh, but what made me want to call Alyssa today was watching the clip of Prince Andrew uh, over the weekend in which he was being interviewed in regard to his association with Jerry Epstein, who you might remember uh, allegedly committed suicide in prison on charges of everything from uh, uh, Servicing servicing rich clients with young underage girls, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Uh, here is a little clip when asked about this this girl and these alleged uh, incidences. Here's what uh, Prince Andrew had to say. I have no recollection of ever meeting this lady. None whatsoever. All right. I guess that's it then. Uh, let's proceed, uh, bring in Alyssa Freeman. Alyssa, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. I mean, I thought when I was I'm watching this... Sound effects. Are we going to sound effects today? Because I want to make some clapping sounds. <laughs> that's, that's just the natural one right there. We're done. <laughs> Nothing more to see here. Everybody turn around. Uh, I, I, re- I love the headline, like watching a man in quicksand. I mean, even if you didn't know the background of this story, I, I, would, I, I would even find it hard to believe just watching Prince Andrew that any of this or any of that he was saying is true. Uh, Your thoughts on the performance? This is an unmitigated PR disaster. And whoever thought it was a good idea, um, honestly, it must really hate the royal family and is looking for their quick demise. You know, the royal family never does tell all interviews like this, especially on sorted subjects where they have been, um, you know, where they are aligned. So normally in this type of case, you continue to offer statements, and that's it, that's all. You know, you don't really care if the media says we asked for an interview and they declined. You don't care about that anymore because what you want to do is control the message. Now, I am, you know, under no doubt that, A, the questions were pre-submitted and approved, and from what I understand, the, the royal family or Prince Andrew himself may have had look at the final cut of the uh, televised interview before it went uh, went on air. Even with all of those so-called checks and balances, his inability to, uh, you know, answer the questions in a, in a dignified and believable way really has dug him an even bigger hole. And in all of this... Um I think what I find fascinating, and as you mentioned, this would all have been prepped ahead of time. Um, Why do an interview unless he has something to say or something to reveal? But basically, he sat before the camera and said, well, I have no recollection of this whatsoever. Are you surprised that that was it? Well, 
am I surprised? No. Am I surprised that he thought that, you know, this would be, you know, as you said, the end of it? Well, that's all done and, you know, moving on. I, I'm surprised that he thought that that would that wouldn't be the case. So because that would have been his reason for doing the interview. All right. I'll just go out and say I never even met this woman and this will be over. Right. And, and, and honestly, you can do that within a statement without subjecting yourself to an interview, interview where people can, you know, scrutinize every single thing about you, the way you say it, if you're looking at the um, interviewer, if you seem nervous, if you seem believable, if you, you know, there's all these things that you can scrutinize and play over and over yeah. and over again, just in case you missed it the first time. So uh, apparently... He does uh, regret the, the TV interview. Um, you know but that you know 2020 is hindsight. You know the cast is the cast is the die is cast, and now we have to live with it. So where it goes from there, who knows? But in in an attempt to sort of uh, take away the suspicion from him, it, it didn't work because you know what do we care really about Prince Andrew? You yeah. know these are. All, you know, the siblings and the progeny that are on the royal list that are funded by taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is this what p- taxpayers are funding? To be a royal is to be, is it, it's a great big PR job is what it is. Yeah. And you represent the country and you represent the values and, and you create positive, positive narratives about the country. There's nothing positive about this. And uh, it, it amazes <laughs> me that they thought that this would help. Well, you know what? I have to imagine that there was a, a big uh, meeting about this, and I think that half the room probably was, don't do it. And then the other half was, you know what? Get Go on TV, appear believable, and yeah. it'll all go away. So obviously the other half won, and now they have to you know, live with the consequences. What do you think the Queen's thinking right now? I think the Queen, I mean, from what I listen, I do watch the Royals, and I've you, followed them for You years, are a but, royal fan, are you not? Well, I wouldn't say a fan, but I'm certainly a watcher, and I'm intrigued by the whole family. Um, you know, uh, Andrew has always been, apparently, one of the Queen's favorites. And one of the things that I read over the weekend was that you always know where the kids stand with the Queen by how they appear uh, with her in public. Um, is this it for him? Is, is his, has he just lost his PR job? Well, I, it's, it, it's interesting. I, I wonder, I think that, I think I hear another voice in the background. <laughs> oh, well, we'll get on that. Okay. Um, has he lost? I think that what they're doing is that they're keeping him as quiet as possible. That was the first thing. So, you know, nobody was seeing Andrew anywhere. And, th- and that was actually probably a good strategy. Yeah. You know, and then he probably thought, well, you know what? I should just come clean, come clean in the way that I think I should come clean, which wasn't coming clean at all, quite honestly. So based on that, you don't want him out there doing any PR because, you know, that's all been diminished. He's basically stripped himself of his of his whole role. Now, the only person who is coming out and saying something about him positively is, believe it or not, his ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson. And, you know, for all these years, they have cohabitated in the same household, which I always found very interesting. But maybe it was just to keep tabs on Randy Andy, as they say. Hmm. So, you know, there is some... Well, see, and, and, and those, yeah. and, you know, you, you, the whole Randy Andy thing, I forgot all about that. But, you know, I mean, you go back 20, 30 years ago when before he was married and the whole Fergie thing, I mean, that, that was his name. So this just kind of fits in with all of that, doesn't it? Well, I, you know, listen, people don't change. God. They may adapt, but they certainly don't change. 
And I think that we are absolutely seeing, you know, how he has continued to grow, quote unquote, but only become even more entrenched in those uh, monikers that, you know, they gave him way back when. So originally it was because he was so, you know, handsome and dashing and he was a prince and all sorts <laughs> of women were throwing themselves at him. But you know what? Who knows what's re- what really happened? And I think that everything is being questioned. Uh, well, and now there's rumors floating around that the FBI want to chat, chat with them. Uh, could this end up obviously uh, uh, opening himself up to more scrutiny over and, uh, uh, over and above the situation with Epstein? Okay, that would be absolutely worst case scenario. Yeah. And if there's, you know, and if you wonder how long, you know, Queen Elizabeth will live, this will certainly take years off her life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, should this happen. And, you know, it was interesting. I was watching the um, Remembrance Day ceremonies, and you can always sort of tell who's in favor with the Queen and who isn't by how close they are within, <laughs> you know, it, within, within the picture. Up on the, the balcony. Ceremony. Yes, it's true. Or whether you're not on the balcony or whether you've been pushed over the balcony. And everybody was saying you will know exactly where Andrew stands with the Queen by where he is in relation to her. And if you remember, and I certainly took notice of this, um, was that he was not in the main box, but he was sort of like pushed off to the side. So I think that the Queen is already seeing that this is a no-win situation, and she has uh, physically started to distance herself from her own son. Uh, we've certainly seen the monarchy, uh, the image of the monarchy improve with uh, Will and Kate and, and, and obviously Harry and, and his new marriage and such. Does this, does this set the monarchy back? I think there's a lot of things setting the monarchy back. You know, you mentioned Will and Kate. You mentioned, um, you know, Prince Harry and, and Meghan. And obviously there's been a lot of negative publicity, negative narratives swirling around the four of them that there's a rift between the brothers because of their respective wives, that um, Harry and Meghan are doing, uh, you know, um, unapproved interviews, talking about how difficult it is to be in the royal limelight. And, you know, the the, the British tabloids have been absolutely horrid to Meghan, absolutely criticizing her each and every move. And there's, I think there's rifts all over the place. And, 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 you know, a lot of this stems from, that the world is changing, that the world is turning, and not everybody is going to have a stiff upper lip and pretend that everything is okay just because you're in the royal family. And that's where a lot of things sort of fall off the rails, quite honestly, that things will never always stay the same. So if you're trying to keep everything in a bubble, that bubble is going to break and you're going to have to deal with the consequences. All right, let's really quickly, with a couple of minutes we got left, talk about uh, the situation with Don Cherry and Ron McLean, Hockey Night in Canada. Obviously, this past weekend... Uh, Don Cherry gone, Ron McLean on his own. Here's a clip of uh, what Ron McLean had to say uh, on Hockey Night in Canada this past week. Don taught me to stand right, so I, I had to have the courage of my convictions. And, and that's what I'll say about you, Don. I, you know, I love you so much. And I, 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 you, you always say you spoke like a 32-year-old American Hockey League player. You were always the captain, the leader of your hockey teams. The coach could count on to take care of the troublemaker. And you taught me to be that guy. And so here I am, sort of standing up uh, and and taking this position. Uh, But that doesn't mean anything uh, in terms of my respect for you or my uh, judgment of you. we will never do anything uh, in the first intermission on Hockey Night in Canada. We have, like, the country to re- reimagine ourselves, and there will be, you know, a possibility of this really bad, unexpected thing to do some good things, I hope. Um, but we, 
we honor what you've meant uh, to the game, to the fact that you uh, have been there for human beings and sentient beings. Um, just a fantastic human being. And so I, I, I love you very much, and, uh, and we honor you tonight uh, in, this, in this last talk about uh, A Coach's Corner. Wow. Your thoughts on all of that? I, and, where we, and, where, and where we ended up. I just feel dirty. You know what? I think that we've all been playing. We're admitted out on all of this. And believe me, I was actually more on the side of Don Cherry to begin with this, thinking that this was just a, a whole crisis communication corporate blunder. I really did. But here's where I've netted out, Scott. Don Cherry said what he said, and he meant what he said. Whether you want to parse you people with everybody, there's still the other half of the interview that says you come to this land of milk and honey and live off of our largesse, okay? I'm paraphrasing. He still meant what he said, and they gave him the opportunity to apologize, except that Don Cherry only wanted to have to smooth things over with a tweet. And I'm sure what they said was, listen, let's do a coach's corner, and let's say, and let's have more of a, you know, hey, kids, you know, I said this, and really, we're a unified country, and all sorts of people play hockey, and we should respect that. And I didn't at that time. I'm sure that was what they offered for him to do. And he chose not to do it. Instead, what he did, Scott, is that he went on his own media tour to go and talk to Heather and Yon, anybody on any, even competing networks, to sort of tell his side of the story. I mean, honest to goodness, who does that except somebody with an axe to grind? And now he has, the, you know, he's got his podcast back and, you know, called The Grapevine. And, you know, he's going to be able to say whatever, anything xenophobic or homophobic or whatever phobic he wants to do. And as for Ron McLean's apology, you know, the first apology, rambling apology he gave was acknowledge that there were things that were potentially racist in what Don Cherry said. He acknowledged that. The second one was more of, gee, I'd sure like to keep my job, but at the same time, um, I love you, Don, but oh, at the same time, uh, you know, we can't talk like this. But there's a lot of things that he still glossed over. So, you know, number one, there was a lack of coordinated messaging across this whole thing. Number two, Don Cherry wanted to do what he wanted to do. If he had apologized, this would have all gone away. I have to believe that. And number three, now he has his own podcast, apparently with his son as co-host. And whoever tunes in will tune in, but then he will see the difference in platform and the difference in the numbers of people who will tune in every week. Yeah. Uh, I, I think both sides could have handled this uh, a lot differently in, in, in a teaching moment, uh, come out of the ashes. But, you know, that's I think that's that's water way under the bridge at this point. All right. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. As always, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.